Welcome to Coach House Talks. Ooh, I've struggled with this one. I cannot deny. So, um, all I'm going to say before I start is all glory to him. Whatever comes out of my mouth, it's not me. Okay. Apart from this bit, I don't think he'll probably want me to say this. How many of you enjoy the classic Who Done It mystery programmes? Yeah? Yeah, they're good. One of the UK's favourite shows is obviously Murder, She Wrote, with Angela Lansbury. Now, anybody remember that? Yes. Oh, yes, everybody. It shows the age range. That's all good. Um, pardon? You try and forget it. Well, unlucky. Uh, Lansbury plays this elderly novelist who wrote murder mysteries, but then used her intuitive senses to solve actual murders that took place wherever she happened to be. Now, you can't help but like a crime-fighting grandma. Except, I wouldn't want to spend much time with a grandma where everywhere she goes, people end up dead. I mean, it's going to be a bit weird, right? So, the murder mysteries of today have come a long way since the days of murder she wrote, The Rockford Files, Columbo, he was a favourite of mine when I was a kid, um, Hawaii Five-0, Charlie's Angels, there we go. Okay, so... What TV dramas used to leave to the imagination shows today portray in a bit of graphic detail, don't they? Mm. Not only is the violence of the crime shown with the extreme detail, but we're even taken behind the senses and deep into the investigations, looking at autopsies, DNA testing, all that kind of stuff. And so much more with shows like Bones, Law and Order, and uh, Becca, Mel, and in my favourite, Line of Duty. I like a bit of Line of Duty. Yes, Cassie too, great. These shows who take the who done it to a whole new level. These investigators often begin with the examination of the victim to discover their identity. And then through the magic of scientific investigation, they identify the criminal behind the crime. It really is amazing what mysteries they can solve in just 60 minutes. I know. So this morning, I want to encourage you to do some self-detecting. No, we don't have a murder to solve, of course, but we want to answer the question, who are you? Do you know your identity in Christ? Do you know who you are? Now, throughout the short letter of Ephesians, of which Andy's just written a short part, Paul emphasises the reality that as believers, we are living our lives in Christ. The theme of our oneness in Christ is often the highest and most important truths in the Bible. And sadly for many believers, it's also perhaps one of the least understood truths. Again and again, Paul comes back to this all-important theme of what Christians have and are in Christ. Just as Paul wanted believers in Ephesus to know who they are in Christ, so too we need to know the answer to that all-important question, who are we? Understanding our identity in Christ is essential to living in Christ because how can you live in Christ if you don't know who you are in Christ? See, right now we live in a world that tries to confuse our identity every single day. We are told that we shouldn't think about others in terms of race or colour and in the same breath told that we should feel guilty about our race And it doesn't even matter what race you are. The world just tells you to feel bad about it. The world also wants you to believe that your gender is a problem. You need to stop acting like a man. You know, enough with this macho mindset. Stop 
acting like a woman. Be more like a man. In fact, you should all swap men to women, women to men. It's not science, is it? It's definitely not godly. It's assignment. It's personal taste. It's not knowing your identity. The world even tries to confuse the identity of the enemy. It tells you that a certain person or a certain group of people are the bad guys, not Satan. He's not real. It also confuses the identity of our Lord and Saviour. The world says Jesus can't be real. He can't be the way, the truth, and the life. Because there are many ways. There's, everyone's truth's a bit different. And your life can be whatever you want it to be. You can do it without anyone else. You don't need a saviour. Another identity crisis we face is when we are attacked by Satan. Our true enemy wants us to believe that we will never, ever, ever be good enough. Never be pretty enough. Always be a loser. Always mess up. Always fail. Never be loved. He wants us to especially believe that God could never love us because of, and then we can all insert something in our own lives there. Your identity faces an attack on a daily basis. Satan swaps the truth with lies and wants you to believe things God would never say about you to make you feel bad about who you are. Designed to try and stop you being the person you were created to be. And instead wants you to become something else. Your enemy is your friend and your friend is your enemy. God could never love someone like you. Problem is, what happens when we face these lies every day is we start to believe them. Even if we don't believe them when we start letting them affect our decision making. So we begin seeing other, other, another person as our enemy instead of looking at them like God would who God loves, just like me, and he wants to have a relationship with. We start to feel guilt and shame for those who we are. Like there must have been a mistake when I was born, and maybe I was supposed to be someone else. It's just another disgusting lie. We hear these lies, and it starts to eat us from the inside out, and then we look in the mirror. Yep, I'm ugly. Yeah, definitely ugly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, told you. You see, faced with such a crisis in identity, how do we find our true selves? How do we let go of who we pretend to be and take hold of who God says we are? Who God has created us to be? And also, how do we find that identity in church? So let's take another look at some of the verses that Andy read in Ephesians. Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, or daughters, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now Paul has one primary thought in this one passage. Our identity as believers is that we are in Christ. Paul uses in Christ or something similar 11 times in this one statement from verse 4 to 14. Paul is making a point that the Ephesians would not miss. Unfortunately, many of us miss Paul's emphasis that as Christians we are united together in Christ. 
Throughout the letter to the Ephesians, Paul ties a letter together with nearly 120 of these in references, most of which are sadly lost in our English translations. So here's a question. How often have you heard someone say something like, we are all God's children? Now I know what they're trying to say. They want to make the point that as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are all God's children. While God, yes, is the creator of everyone in the human race, that does not make you or I children of God. You and I, and everyone else in the human race for that matter, are only children of God if we are in Christ. Paul says that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now, let's not get hung up on that word predestined as many do, but for now, simply understand predestined as this. What God predetermined or decided in advance. And what did God decide in advance? He decided that all those in Christ will be adopted as his sons and daughters. That being in Christ makes us children of God. We must also notice God's motivation here. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God's motivation is love. Paul is emphasizing what God does in love, in the one he loves. In love, God has adopted us as his children in his son, Jesus, the one he loves. So now we know that we are in Christ. We are now adopted into his family. We are children of God. And our identity in Christ is given to us by God in love. What should that now spur us to do? Let's revisit this old-ish worship song written by Graham Kendrick. Are you ready, Morgan? Thanks, mate. The Servant King. From heaven you came, helpless babe. Entered our world, your glory veiled. Not to be served, but to serve. And give your life that we might live. Let's just stop there. Second line, not to be served, but to serve. Wow. The example of the king of kings coming all the way down to earth to serve. So let's carry on. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. And it goes on. There in the garden of tears, my heavy load he chose to bear. His heart with sorrow was torn. Yet not my will, but yours, he said. Come see his hands and his feet, the scars that speak of sacrifice. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. And then this. So let us learn how to serve and in our lives enthrone him. Each other's needs to prefer for it is Christ we're serving. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to him. It's a beautiful set of lyrics. It really is. The scars that speak of sacrifice, our saviour who not only taught the talk, but also walked the walk. So again, the question, we are his. He's done all the work. So why should we have to serve? It's plain and simple, really, because we're told to. There's somewhere around about 276 references of serving in the Bible. 
But what I do want to say is that we shouldn't get the action of serving mixed up with the identity of a slave. We can quite quickly marry the two descriptions, and especially when being a slave meant serving. Whether that was the Roman leader at the time, whether that was the Africans that were shipped off to America, or more recent sex slaves that now get imported and exported from this country to all over the world. There is a massive difference in someone who would enslave you to serve and our saviour and father. Massive difference. And that difference is what? Love. Our father wants the best for us. But also as he loves us, so that should point us into a place of service for him and not man. Let's look at Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Why should we serve the Lord? Simple, isn't it? He died for us. He gave his life as a ransom for you and I. He sacrificed everything so that we may live. Because he presented his body to be beaten, mocked and crucified for us, we should present our bodies a living sacrifice for him. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Now, it's a lot easier to read than actually put into practice. Maybe you're like, well, what use am I? I can't do anything useful. I don't have any church skills. And I'm certain that some of the older end of our spectrum here may well say, well, I've done my bit. I've retired. I've run my race. How can I serve? I'm no use in this digital age. Well, let me tell you, if you're in Christ, you are called to serve, to love just like Jesus did and does. He came down, served on the earth, becoming the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, to show us the way. He served all through his entire life and ultimately served us on the cross. But what does serving mean? Well, it doesn't mean being stood up here. Trust me, you don't want to do that. It's serving one another. Also serving those who don't yet know Jesus. And especially serving in a way that honours God and not ourselves. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 6 to help us navigate this tricky little step of being in Christ and what that means when honouring with our bodies. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. 
then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Just take some of this. Excuse me one second. A while back, I went out to lunch with some friends to celebrate a birthday. We had a great time, and near the end of the meal, I snuck out, I, I snuck out the back to go to the loo. But actually, I went and paid for the meal, because I'm amazed like that. And I go back to the table and I sit down and I'm just waiting for that great moment, you know, when the waiter or waitress comes and, comes and you know, says your name like, you, like they're talking to your dad because they go, uh, Mr. Baker, and you're like, yeah, and you go, Mr. Baker, he's just paid for the meal and it's all covered and there's nothing you need to do. And everyone goes, oh, no way, Jay, you're dead cool. Oh, you're amazing, you're amazing. But that didn't happen this way. <laughs> I'm sitting there and after about five or ten minutes, the server comes out and just says, Somebody paid for the meal, doesn't even make eye contact with me, no wink, no nod at Mr. Baker, Mm-mm, none of that. I don't get anything. And then there's a quick moment, it's about two seconds, where all my friends kind of look around, trying to see someone that they know. They look right past my ridiculous grinning face. <laughs> that. Mm-hmm. Quick little shrug. No wow, no cool. And then everybody just gets up and leaves. And I'm sitting there, and my honest first reaction was, well, that was a waste of money. (laughs) Like, what was all that for? And in that moment, I was robbed of the joy that could have been mine if only my heart and my motivation was coming from a very different place. And that is what Jesus is dealing with here. Now, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who has the sense to do a good thing once in a while for an ulterior motivation. But maybe you're more holy than I am. Chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful. Because right off the bat, this is a warning type of teaching. Like a sit-up, pay attention, be careful. Careful of not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Now, the Greek word that we translate righteousness to is this dikiosini anyone want to have a go at pronouncing it dikiosini okay that's italian oh that's an italian accent trust me don't get me to do welsh that's all i'm going to say you see there's loads of debate and controversy in the academic world and there's a lot of ink spilt over this word and how to translate it but thankfully Most scholars agree, at least on its use here. And this has to do with the word righteousness. And it actually is right relationship. So when we read that word righteousness, we should think it's about the right relationship with God, first and foremost. Now, a number of scholars, and we'll all know this, translate it as good works. Be careful not to practice all your good works in front of others, to be seen by them. And then look further in the verse, it says... If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, let's first start with what he's not saying. Firstly, he's not saying, don't do good works. Notice a line later. It's when you give to the needy, not if. Jesus just assumes that his apprentices will go out and do good works. And for Jesus, good works were exactly that, good now, I've been in church all my life in one way or another, and sometimes I've heard churchgoers say, ooh, 
Be careful of those good works. The thing, the thing is, they're called good works, not bad works here. So Jesus doesn't say, watch out for bad works, like it's a no good works. Actually, Jesus commands you to do good works. So does Paul. And so does a number of the other New Testament writers. So Jesus just assumes, well, of course. If you follow me, then just the natural byproduct of that is you're going to do some kind of good work. So just to clarify, because there's a lot of words like good and bad and works in here. He's not saying, hey, careful, don't do good works. Secondly, he's not saying, if you do good works, hide them. Now, if we read it again, be careful not to practice your righteousness, good works, in front of others. And then we put a full stop right there and we cut out the rest of the sentence, which is meant in order to be seen by them. Now, if Jesus here is saying, hey, if you do good works, make sure you hide it, sweep it under the rug, don't say anything about it, then by that logic, that's true of many things we do in and as church. Giving to the needy, saying a prayer out loud at church or in prayer meetings, putting a tithe in the box at the back, helping someone to their car after church or making a brew for people after church. How are you going to do that in secret? You're not, are you? So let's remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let your light shine. We all know this one, right? It's a famous, famous line. Before others, that they may see your what? Good works, exactly. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Let's go on, Morgan. And glorify your Father in heaven. Now the key line here is glorify your Father, not glorify you. That's the litmus test. So if you're, th- if you're thinking, do I tell people about this really cool Jesus thing that I'm going to do? The litmus test is, does it glorify him? In fact, there are times when you're doing something and it's fitting actually to tell people about it because it does what it says on the tin and it pushes their viewpoint to Jesus. But if it points it to you, there's something wrong. It's like having a missionary come and they're talking about how God is moving and using them. If what they says points to how good, how good they are rather than who he is, then put it through the test. Does it glorify God or does it glorify them? Do people walk away and think, oh, wow, that guy's really amazing? Or, wow, that girl's really amazing? Or are they talking about how good God is? So Jesus is not saying hide all your good works. What he is saying is when you do good works, don't do them to show off or to look good in front of other people. Now the line here is to be seen by them. It can also be translated in order to be noticed by them. In Greek, it's the magical word, I won't make you say it, called theathenai, which is where we get the word theatre from. So more literally, it's to put on a show for them. So Jesus really is dealing with our motivation. Jesus really cares about my behaviour, your behaviour, our behaviour, and he wants to modify it a lot. In fact, I think he wants to radically change it and reteach me a whole new way to be human. You see, for Jesus, right behaviour, though, isn't enough. We need the right heart posture. It's kind of your right motivation behind it. 
There is a temptation that we all face to do the right things for all sorts of kind of ulterior motives, for example. Now, I hate using myself as an example, but I'm up here trying to teach the way of Jesus, and that's hopefully a good thing, but you have no idea why I'm up here. You don't know my motivation right now. You can't see it. You can guess at it, depending on how cynical you are. You can hint at it based on a comment here or a comment there. Or, if you know me, but you don't actually have an insight past my skin into my heart, my motivation. I could be up here because I love Jesus like nobody's business and I want to serve Jesus with my life and I feel like for whatever crazy reason, God's using me in this season. And I love you, the coach house, and I want to serve you. I could be up here for that reason, in theory. Or worse, I'm up here because I want more followers on Instagram, because I want to be seen by a bigger church and then get a job with them so that I can have more power and authority to dominate and impose my will. Or, if I was Andy, and I did check this with him before I say this, I could be up here because this is my job. And I'm a husband and a dad and a granddad and I have children and grandchildren and a mortgage I need to pay for. But let me assure you, thankfully for us, that's not his motivation. The thing is, it's not like any of our motivations are 100% pure. We are human, all in all. And the reality is, we're all a bit of a mixed bag. So why am I teaching and what am I doing with this good works? Whether it's trying to teach the way of Jesus or serving on the worship team or loving others or trying to be a good dad or a good husband, what's my motivation? And that is what Jesus is dealing with here. You see, God is not just the God of the visible parts, the bits that people see, but God is more focused on what people can't see. He's the God of our innermost thoughts, even the thoughts that are going on in your head right now. I'm going to stop there. Now, this is totally like Jamie's wearing shorts. I can't believe he's up there talking from the Bible and he's wearing shorts, right? Could be, could, could be right, right? That's what I want to go through your head now. Sorry, Lord. Um, but he knows the smallest thing that goes through your mind. He sees it all. He sees all our failures and all our selfishnesses. All the things we think we can hide, hide, he knows. And yet, and yet, he still loves us. So, time for a bit of uh, congregational participation. Let's do a little test. What do we think good works are? Now, I'm asking for some suggestions here. You can't just sit there quietly, so... What do we think a good work is? Let's go. Great. Pardon? Giving a lift. Giving a lift. Yeah. Making someone a meal. Making someone a meal. Good. Money for the poor. Money for the poor. Nice. Listening. Pardon? Listening. Listening. Yeah, like I wasn't then. Sorry, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> Listening. <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Visiting. Visiting. It's a good one. Encouraging. Encouraging. Great. Being gracious with one another. I love that. Yeah. Showing that you care. Showing that you care. Nice. Praying for others. Praying for others. Brilliant. Respecting others. 
Respecting others, nice. Come on, is that it? Having empathy for people. Empathy for people. Becca's going to love typing that one. (laughs) Just being a friend. Just being a friend. Brilliant. Well done, mate. That's well good. Right, so we're going to get some of those suggestions up there. Here's a few from Matthew. Matthew 10. Just giving someone a cup of cold water. Obviously, you know, they're going to have to want that cup of water. You know, we don't want to force feed people water when they don't want it, okay? How is water you like? Oh, yeah, you know, I feel like you're dehydrated. No, I'm fine. No, you must take it. Yeah, that kind of thing. Matthew 19, give to the poor. Matthew 6, give to the needy. What about signing up to be part of the welcome team? Or the coffee and tea rotor. Or helping at Little Sparks. Or any of the many things that happen in church. What about them? Well, what is it that you can do to serve? Well, you just help create a list. There are many things, not only in church, but outside of this building that could be called good works and an opportunity to serve. Whether you're young or old, mobile or restricted movement, we all have the opportunity to serve, just as he did, as long as the glory of the servant heart always points towards Jesus. So who are we? We are children of God when we are in Christ. That's our true identity. And when we are in Christ, we should be moved to serve. Now, I want to finish with a story I read last week. We've all been around someone when someone's mobile phone goes off at the worst possible time. Yep, it happens a bit here. It's all good. I know I've definitely shot a stern look before in the cinema when I was halfway through a movie and someone's phone goes off. Yep. I'm the guy who gets very disgruntled with that. So when I came across the following story, it definitely made me think. The following story is about a man whose mobile phone went off during church. But what happens next is a real eye-opener. So this guy goes to church, forgets to switch off his phone, which is why if, you've, if you ever hear early and Phil and Paula are here, Paula always goes up to Phil. It's brilliant. Every Sunday goes... You put your phone on silent every Sunday. He can, he can never forget, right? But this guy forgets to switch off his phone and his phone rings dur- during the middle of a prayer. The pastor goes, what are you doing? Can you turn your phone off? The congregation chastised him after the service for interrupting the silence. His wife kept on lecturing him on his carelessness all the way home. You could see the shame, embarrassment and humiliation in his face. That evening, he just needed to get out, so he went to a bar. He was still nervous and trembling. He was so nervous, after all the comments, he spilled his drink on the table by accident. It's not been a good day, is he? The waiter apologised and gave him a napkin to clean himself. The cleaner came out from the back and mopped the floor. The female manager offered him a complimentary drink. She also gave him a huge hug while saying, Don't worry, man. Who doesn't make mistakes? After all this... 
he never stepped foot in the church again. However, he has not stopped going back to that bar though. See, sometimes our attitude as believers drives souls further away from him. We can all make the difference right now by how we treat, serve and love people and each other. But on the glorious Jesus side of this, we are also definitely hold the key to others seeing Jesus. How we love them, speak to them, serve them is such a great opportunity to show Jesus to a world where they don't even know who they are and don't have any hope. They're missing out and it's our job to point them to him. So let's love as Jesus loves because we wouldn't be where we are without a sacrificial serving saviour. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.